Welcome to the Political Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Buckle, and welcome to the first episode of Season 2, Don't Trust the World to be Right. So that's the theme for this season, Don't Trust the World to be Right. In other words, the political world around us, the social systems we live in, and even our moral intuitions, our gut feelings about what's right and wrong, In this season, we're going to be asking, are they really right? Where did they come from? Why should we trust them? And as with anything I say that sounds like it might be kind of intelligent, it's actually a paraphrase of uh, John Stuart Mill, who's my favourite philosopher. So, welcome to the season. If you're joining us for the first time, welcome. I hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you're returning from season one then welcome back. Before we get into tackling some of our core moral intuitions, which we're going to be doing in the current episodes, I thought it would be great to start the season by asking, how did all this get started? In other words, how did political and philosophical discussions first originate? Who were the first human beings in history to think philosophically and to have philosophical thoughts. And joining me to provide, or try and provide an answer to this question, I have Professor Peter Adamson. So this is a great guest I'm really excited about. Uh, Peter Adamson is a professor of ancient and Arabic philosophy at the University of Munich. He's written articles, monographs, books on philosophy in the Islamic world and on ancient philosophy. He's also the host of the podcast History of Philosophy Without Any Gaps, which is just an amazing and accessible history of philosophy without any gaps, like it does what it says on the tin. But for those of you who aren't familiar, it's a very strongly recommended um, uh, podcast on philosophy. And we're going to be tackling the question of the first philosophical thinkers in human history, and how that relates to religious thought and political thought. If those are themes that interest you, there are some episodes in season one that um, work along similar themes. So I just did a series on early Christianity with Professor Dale Martin that I'm pretty proud of. And if you're interested in some of the points I make towards the end of this episode about the nature of the political, um, you'll notice I'm working with quite a different concept of politics than you might be used to. I'm drawing that, um, I'm very influenced there by Michael Frieden, who's a scholar of political ideologies. So if that's interesting to you, I actually had Frieden on. It's episode three, season one. Uh, Quite a challenging conversation, but a lot of people have said they find it valuable, so please feel free to check that out. Otherwise, welcome to season two. It's great to have everyone here. One thing I will note for this episode is I record interviews in big batches. So I did a big batch of like 12 interviews for season one. This was the first conversation I had for the big batch that is going to be season two. And interviewing is not exactly like riding a bike. Um, You do sort of get into the flow of it. So for the first couple of questions in this interview, I kind of stutter my way through them, and I just left that in. Um, But I think you'll hopefully agree by the end of it, I'm uh, I'm back on the horse, and... Well, if not, if not. But, um, yeah, this was a really great conversation, 
and yeah, I hope you enjoy it too. So, without further preamble, it is my pleasure to bring you Professor Peter Adamson. joined here today with Peter Adamson, host of the History of Philosophy Without Any Gaps. Peter, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me on. So, I wanted to talk to you today about the invention of philosophy. Before we do, um, you've been doing your podcast for how long now? Uh, uh, Let's see, it started in October 2010. So while we're recording, we're recording this in, what is it, June? It's June 2018. So seven and a half years, I guess. That's crazy. Did you have a sense? So I I think this will be familiar to a lot of our listeners. I think, in fact, 50 of maybe our first hundred followers um, came from you when, you know, you were generous and promoted our show on your social media. Um, But for those who haven't, um, could you give us some sense of it? Because it's really an incredibly ambitious but also quite accessible project. I mean, it's in the name, Creating a History of Philosophy Without Any Gaps, which is a pretty big undertaking. Did you have any idea that you'd be here almost a decade later? And did you know you'd be here when you started? I underestimated it a lot. I thought of it as something that I could probably kind of do in my spare time. And I even had this naive idea that in my academic life would kind of be untouched by it. I thought maybe my colleagues wouldn't notice I was doing it because I thought there might, you know, there'd be a few hundred listeners, whatever. And I also envisioned doing it as basically sitting down once a week, banging out a little essay on what I knew about the philosopher for that week and then recording it, which I thought would be easy. And Part of the reason for that is that since I started with ancient philosophy and I teach ancient philosophy and then I plan to move on to philosophy in the Islamic world and medieval philosophy, these are all areas that I knew pretty well. But even to do that, I wound up getting into some topics that I didn't know so well about, like ancient Christian philosophy, for example. Also, they eventually wound up appearing as books, which meant that I had to add lots of footnotes and make sure all the punctuation was correct and everything. And even though the original conception was already pretty ambitious, so as you say, the idea was to cover the history of philosophy without any gaps, in other words, without leaving anything out, which basically at the beginning meant for me to cover not just major figures like Plato and Aristotle, but minor figures like, say, the students of Plato and Aristotle. So Theophrastus, right, student of Aristotle, wrote about plants, minerals, wrote a work uh, engaging with some of Aristotle's metaphysical ideas. So there's an episode on Theophrastus, for example, and and uh, Plato's students. But I originally thought that I wouldn't get into non-Western philosophy apart from philosophy in the Islamic world, which takes us on to the topic you want to discuss. And almost immediately, when once the podcast had enough listeners for anyone to complain about anything, they immediately started complaining rightly that I was calling this philosophy without any gaps, the history of philosophy without any gaps, and yet I wasn't covering whole cultures like India and China. And so I changed my mind about that and decided that I could cover 
these other cultures if I teamed up with co-authors. So I contacted Janardan Ganeri, who is an expert in Indian philosophy, and we did a series on Indian philosophy as part of the podcast, which is like 70 episodes worth on Indian philosophy. And at the moment, I'm covering Africana philosophy with Chike Jeffers, who is an expert in Africana philosophy. And I'm hoping in the future to do Chinese philosophy, maybe also uh, go back to India, do later Indian philosophy, which we didn't do yet. Maybe Japanese, Korean philosophy. One could also imagine doing series on, say, Latin American philosophy. I've thought about the idea of doing a, a series just on indigenous philosophies, like, say, Native American philosophy, philosophy among the Inuits, philosophy in Aboriginal uh, peoples all around the world in Australia and so on. So I'm pretty committed now to the idea that the project includes these non-Western tradition. And in fact, that even half of the project is non-Western because what I do now is I alternate weeks. So for example, at the moment, I'm covering Byzantine philosophy in the original series. So I'll do an episode on Byzantine philosophy, like the upcoming episode is Iconoclasm, for example. And then the week after that will be an interview with someone about Egyptian, ancient Egyptian philosophy. Uh, didn't you define iconoclasm somewhat tongue-in-cheek as a societal retreat from a declining empire and military defeat? That just becomes the hobby of elites, is getting into iconoclasm. Yeah, That's there's a... some truth to that. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> no, I just remembered that comment. I thought it was cute. Um, but yeah, and you're still really not giving scope to the, the just the, 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 the breadth of this project, because it's, what, 300 episodes now? Each yeah, one. if you count the India ones it's and Africana ones, it's it's up to like 375 or something. And each one like a 20-minute, fairly accessible introduction. And I've got to say, I'll tell you this, um, now we're recording, I've, I've interacted with a few different philosophy, um, you know, podcast hosts. I've, I've got to say, I don't know if yours is necessarily the highest following, it may be, it's the most loved. Like, when you first... <laughs> um, when you first um, uh, shared my show, I remember I got a comment on one of our pages, which I'm paraphrasing, but it was essentially like, well, I don't really know what this is, but if Peter Adamson is recommending it, I'll give it a go. And I, was just... <laughs> God, I have to be more careful what I recommend. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it does, it does seem to have inspired, I don't know if it's the accessibility or the occasional dad joke, but it does seem to have... Uh, inspired a real affection from its followers. Yeah, that's good. Well, that's uh, certainly, if it gets people interested in the history of philosophy, then I'm happy. So, talking of philosophy then, um, you seem both like politically and intellectually committed to the idea of like a pluralistic study of philosophy where we're looking at different origin points around the world. Um, we, we, I want to run through some of those, but before we do, do you have a definition of what philosophy is, what we're doing when we do philosophy, that would be specific enough to allow us to say if a particular culture has developed philosophy, but not so specific that we're stacking the deck in advance? Yeah, that's a great question. And obviously, we could spend the whole time for this interview talking about that. This is a very difficult question, and indeed a philosophical question. It's hard to give a definition of philosophy that gives hard and fast criteria, just as, you know, it would be hard to give, the, to use a Wittgensteinian example, it's hard to give hard and fast criteria for what a game is. 
but you kind of know what a game is. And I think actually, if I'm honest, when I try to figure out what to include, usually I don't sort of look to some mission statement. Here's what philosophy is. I just go by my own subjective taste. So if something strikes me as philosophically interesting, I cover it. And if not, I don't, or I do cover it, but only as kind of background and context. And when, therefore, I'm covering, let's say, let's take iconoclasm, since it's fresh in my mind. I just did the script recently uh, and recorded it. Now, iconoclasm is not really a debate within philosophical literature at all. None of the texts that are about iconoclasm are, for example, commentaries on Aristotle or in other genres we would unproblematically consider to be philosophical. But if you think about it, you can see that what they're arguing about is the relationship between an image and the thing depicted in the image. And the fundamental question is, everyone agrees that it's okay to venerate a saint. Does that mean it's okay to venerate a picture of a saint? So immediately you're getting into this very central question of aesthetics. What's the, what's the relationship between an image and its archetype, as they would say, to the thing depicted, right? So uh, without getting too far into that example, to me, that's clearly a central question of aesthetics. The debate over iconoclasm is one of the most interesting pre-modern discussions of that. So to me, that's a slam dunk case. So I don't see how any historian of philosophy could kind of reasonably deny that that was an interesting thing to look at. And in a way that does lead me to the best thing I could give you as a general definition, which is that although maybe there's no way of really explaining what philosophy is, in, at least not simply, you can say that there are clearly some core philosophical questions that have always been part of what people thought of as philosophy. For example, what is knowledge? How should we live? What exists? What is the relationship between images and their archetypes? So that's a very basic question in a lesser discussed field of philosophy, namely aesthetics, and so on, right? And I think that philosophy is just the, the attempt to answer those questions that we recognize as philosophical. I realize that's kind of circular. But it's not, maybe if I was going to be more precise about it, I wouldn't say that it's just the attempt to answer those questions. It's more like, the study of what happens when you make certain assumptions regarding those questions or give certain answers. So for example, you could say, well, I think that an image is in some sense identical with its archetype, right? That would be a very bold theory in aesthetics. And then you immediately see that a whole bunch of philosophical things follow from that, right? So you have to explain what identity means. You have to explain how to not how two things that are in different space and time could be identical. You can see that there's a whole bunch of further questions and maybe objections that arise. And I think that philosophical understanding isn't really just a matter of having certain answers to these questions. It's more like having an understanding of all the answers that could be given and what speaks for and against those answers, which means, as I like to say, that effectively the history of philosophy is just the same thing as philosophy because the complete record we have of all the answers that have been given to all of the central philosophical questions. And obviously that leaves open that it may be a kind of blurry issue, what is and is not a philosophical question. So for example, it used to be that physics was part of philosophy, now it's not. 
and natural philosophy exactly so physics i mean it's a, it's a work by aristotle so if you have a question like what is space that sounds like a philosophical question but in aristotle and in later figures that's very closely associated with the question of can there be void in other words can there be empty space and we now wouldn't think of that as a philosophical question. We think we know the answer, right? Yes, there can be empty space. And it was sorted out by physicists, not philosophers, right? Yeah. I mean, a certain amount of that is um, us anachronistically projecting back department boundaries that just in no way existed in the cultures we're talking about. Because, I mean, in ancient Greece, which is the one I'm most familiar with, philosopher just almost meant like wise man or person who thinks about stuff and it would have included a plethora of subjects that we see as completely distinct right yeah and then the other thing that comes to mind though listening to you talk is um this is the political philosophy podcast and it seems like there's another two things both of which in a, again in a Wittgensteinian sense you'd struggle to give an exact definition of but politics and religion which it seems like we've been doing from the beginning of time, but in and of themselves would seem to prompt questions that at least have the flavour of the philosophical to them. Um, let's go back right to the beginning, because most of the time people think of ancient Greece as the starting point. But the tell me if I'm wrong, the earliest I got from your show, the earliest artefact you examined as potentially philosophical, wasn't even the first uh, writings, it was the first representations. So things like cave paintings, stuff like that. There is some thesis that those might have intake this might have been the first representations of philosophy could we start at the very beginning and you tell us a bit about that yeah so i mean this obviously gets us into very contentious territory and if i was trying to convince someone about this pluralist approach to the history of philosophy i would not start with cave paintings i would start with let's say confucius and early buddhism or maybe uh, some of the earlier reflections on the Vedas in India. And I mean, there you can literally just hand someone a page of ancient Buddhist writing or a page of ancient debates from Confucianism and say, read that and you tell me what that is. Like wh what genre of work is this or what department of human intellectual endeavor is this? And they'll read it and they'll see that it says something like, well, knowledge is impossible because if we knew anything, then we would have to give a definition of what knowledge is first, but we'd have to know what the definition was, so it'd be circular, right? right. So no, no one's going to look at that and think, oh, that's religion. They're going to think that's philosophy. And you can find examples Although of this very easily. It's in, in, a, it's in a text that people, if they saw the name of the text, would categorize as a religious text, presumably. They might, but I mean, if, I mean so uh, one of my favorite examples from India is Nagarjuna, who's an ancient Indian Buddhist thinker. And one of his texts is called Refutation of My Opponents. And so he just goes through some things his opponents have said about his theory of emptiness, where he says that nothing has an intrinsic nature. And they try to catch him out contradicting himself, right? They say things like, if your arguments for emptiness are themselves empty, and you say everything is empty, then why should they convince us? And he responds. So, in fact, from page one to so even just the, last the title page, by itself, if you had to have a stab title. at where that came from, yeah. So, and, 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 I mean, you, uh, you can explain what it all has to do with Buddhism, 
but actually that's not obvious. So the, the religious aspect of the text is actually far less evident than the philosophical aspect of the text in that case. But going back even before then, there are at least some people who'd want to claim that we were doing philosophy of some sort even right, before right. we were writing it down, right? Yeah, so that goes, goes back to the cave paintings. And in fact, you, could, you can maybe um, kind of start with relatively uncontentious cases from these non-Greek cultures. So in India and China, also in Egypt, where you have what really look like philosophical dialogues. We just covered that in the Africana show. Um, and then maybe go back to things like ancient myths or epics like Gilgamesh, and then go past that to really archaeological remains. And that's where you're talking about, you know, building sites, inscriptions, paintings, cave paintings, right? So the reason why we started with the cave paintings, and here I should say that um, this was not really my idea. This was my co-host's idea, Chike Jeffers, because he's thought a lot more about this than I have, actually. But I think he's right to ask us to think about this, at least. A lot of people think that philosophy or deep reflection on philosophical questions, like, you know, roughly, what is the meaning of life? Or how should we live? Or what is existent? what exists? These very fundamental questions. Or questions about the relationship between rulers and subjects to give a political example, a lot of people kind of just intuitively think, well, in some sense, thinking about stuff like that is just part of what it is to be human, right? It's part of the human condition to, for example, wonder how to live and try to be a better person. And if it's true that part of what it means to be a human is to think philosophical thoughts, then it obviously follows from that, that the first philosophers or the first people to have philosophical thoughts, at least, were the first humans, right? Which means Africans. And in general, you could also look at cave art, as it's apparently called in the fields. You can look at cave art around the world because there's some in Australia, there's some obviously in Europe, like the famous cave paintings at Lascaux in France. There's some in Africa. Um, you can look at cave art, you can look at um, artistic productions like you know, polished hand axes or beads and you can try to infer from that what intellectual commitments these people had. Now, obviously, that there's a big difference between something like that and an argumentative text like you'd find in Aristotle or, for that matter, Nagarjuna. So, so I mean, a hand axe is not a philosophical text at all, never mind a philosophical text in the obvious way that a, an argumentative work by Nagarjuna or Aristotle is. But on the other hand, I think that we, in general, historians of philosophy probably should be more open to the idea of investigating things that are not texts at all, maybe, or are at least not texts that kind of wear their philosophical nature on their sleeve. So another example might be literature, right? So if you read something like Shakespeare or the Canterbury Tales, you can extract a lot of philosophical material out of that, even though it's not a philosophical text. There were philosophical suppose, aspects to both of those things, though, surely. Yeah, yeah, right. And, I mean, the cave art is really difficult because you have a lot less context and information about what they're doing than what Shakespeare was doing, for example. But mm -hmm. in some sense, it's similar, right? So you've got a non-philosophical object of interest, and what you're trying to do is figure out the kind of philosophical presuppositions or commitments 
that may hang together with this material. We do, though, have some reasonably direct evidence, not of philosophy, but the the, the, the idea of, we would call it religious, but I, I guess more broadly you could just say like altered states of perception, like people have been having visions, people have been using drugs, people have been perceiving the world in quite radically different ways right back to the beginning, right? Like, right back to pre-literate people, almost like as soon as language evolved. Because that does seem to be hardwired into our neurology somehow. And you, you, the very first stuff you get seems to be religious. And there's an interpretation of um, a lot of the early cave paintings, right? As not as literal, I saw the bison, I paint the bison. But more these are sort of visionary experiences that people are trying to capture, which isn't necessarily philosophical, but it seems like something that could easily lead to philosophical reflection, right? Yeah. Or, I mean, if that's true, and you're right that that's a common theory about cave art, is that it's um, maybe connected to what's sometimes called shamanic culture. So you have these perhaps uh, special individuals within the in the society, and they're the ones who are in touch maybe with this spirit world. And perhaps through a trance or drugs or whatever they did it, they get in touch with the spirit world and then the paintings are a record of that. So let's just say for the sake of argument that that's true. That doesn't make the cave art a philosophical text, but it means that there's a lot philosophically going on in the background. So you have claims about different cognitive states, some of which are conveying insights that aren't available in any other way. Right. So you have a kind of normal type of cognition that allows you to just engage with the world around you in an everyday way. And then you have this heightened state of cognition that gives you access to these other objects, maybe that you can't see normally, the spirit world. And so you have a kind of two level epistemology there, right? And that's only, and we got, so there we've already figured out a way in which cave art might be philosophically interesting. And we've only been talking about it for like two minutes, right? So you can imagine how much you might be able to extract from let's say reading the complete uh, record of anthropological reflection on the nature of cave art, which of course is vast. Yeah, and I mean, the actual truth of this may well just be lost to us at this point. But it, it seems to me that both religion and politics are things that there's a clear path forward from them to philosophy, even if they're not philosophical in and of themselves. Because if people are having experiences of a different realm, then, and if you assume that these people are walking around with the same hardware but not the same software that we do, i.e. our innate intelligence but not our equipment that our culture and our learning have given to us, but they you know, would have the same IQ or something, it seems completely plausible that if you've got people saying, I've been to this spirit world, that someone would start asking, well, where is the spirit world? Is it in the mm-hmm. sky? Is it like parallel to our world? How do we know it's there? And then, yeah. then immediately you would be in the... There wouldn't be a written record of it. So again, this is speculative. But it seems like someone would have asked those questions, right? Yeah. It at least seems plausible. And there's also what makes you so special. Like, why are you yeah. the shaman? Why are you the, why are you the powerful person who has this... And, you know, knowledge is power, right? Mm-hmm. So you have this special kind of knowledge. You have this special kind of power. And if we go a little bit forward to things that people don't usually think of as philosophical but are at least texts, you can see from pretty much as soon as writing develops, you have stuff that's very redolent of political issues. So for example, in Gilgamesh, you don't have to 
do very much interpretation to see that issues about uh, the difference between just rulership and unjust rulership are being raised, right? Because it actually describes how an unjust king exploits the people in Gilgamesh. And the same thing is true of early uh, Egyptian writing. There's a lot of reflection on this idea of mat, right? Justice or righteousness or truth, which is often brought in as a kind of virtue or value that should guide the good ruler, right? The, the ruler should rule in line with or by looking to mat. Or in the Indian tradition, you have this work by uh, Kautilya, uh, which called the Adha Shastra, so the treatise on advantage or something like that, which is uh, maybe the first, and also it's a very long book of advice for rulers. And again, a lot of it's practical. So you might think, well, it's not that philosophical, but it really raises a lot of issues about what is the nature of good rulership? Uh, what is the nature of justice and how much does it matter whether a ruler is just, right? So is, is being a just ruler the same thing as being a successful ruler? How cynical should we be? And you can actually see that this text, which is probably brought together from different disparate sources, you can actually see different ideas and attitudes from more cynical and less cynical being brought together and put in opposition to each other. So not only do you have um, independently arising kind of cultural centers where philosophical material happens, but you can see a lot of the same issues coming up in epistemology, in metaphysics, in ethics, but also in political philosophy, which maybe makes you think that there's something to it, right? Yeah. I've got some thoughts on the political side, but one thing I always have to sort of pinch myself and remind myself of when you get into this period of history is just how frickin' long ago it was. Like, I think in our heads, like, the, the beginning, like, the Fonzet Origa of history is like Athens, but Athens is, is way down the road from the societies we're talking about. Like, if you've got, we started with, like, presumably hunter-gatherer societies, and then when you begin to get your first settled societies, your first cities in Egypt, the, um, what's it called, the Urduk expansion in Mesopotamia, we're talking, that's as far away from ancient Athens as ancient Athens is away from us. Yeah. Like there's something a whole... I like to... Yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say something that I, I like to tell my students is that we are closer to Charlemagne than Charlemagne was to the pre-Socratics. Right? So that, to give them an idea of how long ago the pre-Socratics are, and you're right that the pre-Socratics are sort of halfway between us and some of these texts we're talking about. So some some Egyptian texts that you can recognize as philosophical are from, you know, like 1000 BC uh, 1500 BC, etc. So you're right. It's as you so rightly say, it's really freaking long ago. I've um, been reading. It's just a compilation of first-hand sources, but I just have it to hand. A history of the ancient Near East, and it's literally just first-hand sources. And I've really been. I'll link to that when I put the website up. Just very, very impressed by just. There's like half of human history, half of recorded human history that we basically never talk about, and that's. Right. And it's kind of a fun human history. You've got stuff mm -hmm. like the Assyrian Empire and the, the Babylonian Empire that are really fun bits of history, and we just don't go there. The thought I was going to bring in, though, is the other one that seems to go right back to the beginning is political thought, even if it's not expressly philosophical. From the, from the very beginning, the first documents we have, um, so you mentioned Gilgamesh, are invoking political concepts that would be reasonably familiar to us about authority, about justice, 
Um, they don't have some concepts um, that we would use politically. So there's no conception of the individual as we would think about it. There's no conception of um, rationality in the modern sense. And then there's some concepts like maybe honour, or in the Greek case, you've got this word like arte, variously translated as virtue or excellence, that don't really have modern analogues. But they're clearly political concepts. And you've clearly got people coming in, and in a very modern sense, like it seems like, you know, this idea that someone comes along and says, this is what justice is, and someone else comes along and says, no, this is what justice is. That seems, that, that sort of, which is still recognisable in modern political philosophy, that goes right back to the earliest texts that we have, and presumably it must have gone back before then, because humans are communal creatures, right? In political philosophy, we have this founding myth of the individual in Hobbes and Locke, and more recently in contract theory like Rawls. We theorise an individual coming together to form a society, but that's not historical. We had, I talked about this with um, Rupert Reed on the podcast quite a lot, the original human grouping is maybe a tribe of 100 to 150 people. And so ideas about what do we do next? How do we decide what to do next? How do we um, organise collectively? How do we set visions for the future? That must have gone... I, I, I can't help but feel that must have gone right back to even like the invention of language. But certainly once you get the settled societies... It's the, the political debates there from the beginning of history, right? Yeah, I think that must be right. I guess that, that, I mean, if we play devil's advocate for a second here, we might say, well, hang on a second, hang on a second. The fact that people are, for example, making claims to political authority, that's not philosophy, right? That's just saying I'm the chief. And maybe even having an ideology, maybe a religious ideology that somehow justifies why the chief is the chief, that's not philosophy either. If you set a very high bar, you might think that philosophy is only going to be reflective, kind of self-conscious and probably textual reflection on these questions I was mentioning before, which include questions of political philosophy. So you might wonder, well, why, why, am, I, why am I sort of promoting this much broader and in some sense vaguer uh, way of approaching it? And there are various reasons. So one is that the more explicit philosophical discussions grow out of the less explicit discussions. So maybe the oldest works that actually reflect explicitly on this sort of issue on ethics and politics are ancient Egyptian. And they are dialogues where two people are arguing over, for example, the implications of Mott, right? And if you want to understand that, then you need to understand what Mott is that's embedded in a religious context, but it's kind of an intrinsically philosophical idea as well as a religious idea, et cetera, et cetera. So part of the point here is that it's just kind of hard to know where to draw the line and where the historian of philosophy should stop being interested in what's going on. And I have to admit that to some extent, I'm very guided by the thought if you're not sure, then why don't you go look into it? Because it might be interesting. It might be interesting. So I'm much more interested in getting stuff in than getting stuff out, basically. But I think another problem, and this is something we're going to be getting into a lot in our Africana series, another problem is that prejudice about texts. So usually historians of philosophy, almost always, in fact, historians of philosophy, imagine themselves as people who read and interpret texts. And of course, this is what I personally do in my professional life. 
not most of the time, but all of the time, right? I'm reading Aristotle, I'm reading Avicenna, whoever it is, and I'm interpreting the text. But if you take this idea seriously that you were just articulating that uh, ideas about politics or other areas of philosophy must be kind of floating around in these indigenous cultures and all of the cultures, not just the Greeks or not just the Greeks and the Indians who invented things that we think look like philosophy or maybe China as well, then you start to wonder, well, how could we get access to their ideas? And here we get into uh, something that's been most thoroughly explored in the African context, though you could explore it also, say, with respect to Native Americans. Um, you, you don't need texts if you can find out what these people actually think, right? And you can find out what they think to some extent by asking them, right? So you have anthropologists who go to these non-literate societies and interview people or just spend time with them and come back and report about what they found. So let me give you an example of this, uh, just because it's a script that I wrote recently for the Africana series. There is a big debate about the so-called African philosophy of time. So this is not a political example. We're doing some more political things in the Africana series too, but we haven't gotten that to that yet. So I'll give you this example. So there's a scholar named John Mbiti who wrote a book, actually several books, in which he argued that there is a what he called an African view of time or theory of time, basically according to which the past is not very long and the future almost doesn't exist. Because since they live in this non-technological context, they don't have watches, um, they don't have, in fact, timepieces of any kind. So they think in about time in terms of seasonal change, but the seasons are always the same. And so for them, events are just whatever they can remember, whatever's going on right now and what they're expecting to do in the near future, which means that their time horizon is completely different from ours. And he had various reasons why he thought this was important. But then there's big debate erupted between scholars of African philosophy about all kinds of things having to do with this. So um, did the anthropological evidence bear this out? So some anthropologists said, no, I, I've talked to African tribesmen who talk about what's going to happen in a century from now um, or who plan for their children's future decades from now. Some said, well, Mbiti was right about these tribes, but these other peoples in Africa, they have a different approach to time. So you can't be so general about it as to say all Africans. Some other people said, actually, Mbiti is right, but it's not just Africa. It's all indigenous people. So all pre-modern people think about time this way. In a sense, maybe even Aristotle did. So there's this big debate about it, all without any reference to texts. So there are sometimes they'll quote, for example, proverbs that are told in traditional African communities, but there's no books involved. It's just a claim about what people think. And you're trying to get in you're trying to get at what they think by analyzing things like the way that verbs work in their language or traditional sayings or just their way of life. And this is, I think, very philosophically interesting, and it makes sense that there'd be a debate about it. So whether or not you think Mbiti is right, he certainly introduced a topic there that can be a sensible subject for philosophical controversy. So I've, I've just on that topic of time, I've got something I want to riff off that and then get your response to, um, which I didn't necessarily expect to get into. 
But I think this is one of these things where looking at history of fragmentary and incomplete evidence is a bit like a Rorschach test. You know that thing where the psychologist holds up an ink blot and what you see says more about you than what's on the page. But this right. is but my read of talking about like the length of time and the nature of time is that sort of discussion and that sort of um debate or even just set of ideas is innately political and would strike me as being derived from the political because one of if we take politics loosely as decision making and agenda setting within collectives then one of the foundational elements of the political is a conception of time and control over time so authority both in traditional and modern societies is almost always derived from the past as being part of a lineage historically or in the modern sense being able to go back to a constitution or a founding moment who first originated this who first set this process running and then to take that authority and to project it into the future one of the foundational aspects of the political is the control of future time and the control of future people but then of course once you start thinking about well why is this person in charge the most common answer isn't uh, the philosophy of justice or whatever the most common answer is because his father was right or even in the modern sense why is this person in charge well ultimately because of the constitution you're going back to this almost like mythological big bang right but then that question prompts a question about how long time is and about um, so, so then another example that would flip off that would be the, the ancient Mesopotamians were keenly aware of just how old the world was. There's a wonderful quote uh, from, I forget the author, where he says the world was old and well aware of its antiquity. They, they had these genealogies of the pharaohs and these myths of pre-Diluvian monarchs who reigned for tens of thousands of years. But then that again feeds back into the political in how you claim your authority and how you project it forward. So to my mind, a conception of how long historical time is, whether we've been here for a couple of generations or for tens of thousands of generations, is an intrinsically political question because it's a question about authority, or it's at least mm -hmm. pertinent to that. And it seems like you'd get that question and you'd get people philosophizing in that way because there would be a question of who's in charge. And then you yeah. start trying to project backwards and forwards. I'll pause mm -hmm. that. Yeah, a lot of that, what you just said, is relevant in the debate about um, this theory of time in the African context. Because, for example, one of the things that Mabiti and like-minded scholars said is, well, for these African peoples who are living in a quote-unquote pre-modern context, they think of the past as extending as far back as they can name their lineage. So if they can name like eight ancestors, the past for them is, you know, basically the time it's taken for eight ancestors to exist, maybe a century or two tops. And it was also discussed in terms of things like, oh, does the African conception of time inhibit their development, right? Because if you don't have a concept of the future, then you're not going to work to build institutions or technologies or whatever that will benefit your great, great, great grandchildren, right? And so on and so forth. So actually, um, your intuition there that this idea of what time is and how much of their, uh, how much time there is, so to speak, or how far does time extend 
forwards and backwards. Uh, the fact that that was a political question is explicitly present in the literature on this so-called African theory of time. That's awesome. Um, and yet, yeah, to a point you made earlier where you said the existence of a debate about um, justice or honour or whatever isn't innately political. No, so isn't, is political but not innately philosophical. Yeah, I mean, that seems right. Um, but if we grant that there have been these political debates, which I think is it's clearly there's been them as long as there's been written history, right? And I think it seems reasonable to assume going back before then. Um, you've got to ask the question, how many times does the political debate lead to a philosophical one? So if people are making assertions about what justice is, how often does someone come along and go, well, let's, let's get to the bottom of this? I mean, I'll put it simply and maybe somewhat... Um, um, facetiously, but it seems like it's implausible that the very first human being in human history, Socrates, um, to, to, to come along and say, well, hang on a minute, you're saying this is because of justice. What do, you, what do you mean by justice? Can you tell me what it is? It seems really odd to think he would be the first one ever to have done it, as opposed to just the first that we know about. Yeah, yeah and in fact, these Egyptian texts that I mentioned a few times they explicitly raise the question of what ma'at consists in, and ma'at is sometimes translated as justice. So it's certainly not Socrates who's the first. Um, I mean, I think what you could maybe say, though, is that you don't, I could imagine someone saying that you don't really have philosophy worthy of the name until you at least have some kind of disagreement, and disagreement that somehow goes back to principles. So it's not just, I mean, it's not a philosophical disagreement if, if you say, well, should we attack the next village or not? Well, they have more young men than we do, right? So that's just prudential calculation. That's not philosophy. It's, it's philosophical as soon as you say, well, should we? I mean, would it be okay for us to do that? Because they didn't steal anything from us. But they have stuff, they have more stuff than we do. So it's okay to so steal their stuff, right? So as soon as you start justifying what you're going to do or not do, in something like moral and political terms, you're at least implicitly invoking some kind of principles of normative rationality, right? And you wouldn't call it that, right? You don't think, oh, here we are having a discussion about the principles of normative rationality, but you're invoking uh, principles that a philosopher who wanted to think about it more explicitly could come along and say, well, let's think about this. Like, is that a good principle to be reasoning by. Um, I mean, there is obviously a danger here that any, um, any or almost any example of human behavior of any kind is going to turn out to be philosophy, right? So as soon as someone makes an image or performs an action or justifies an action or tries to explain why they did what they did, um, I mean, the, a lot of the conversation, the way the conversation has been going between the two of us is starting to sound like it goes in the direction of saying, well, basically anything counts, right? Anything is potentially interesting to the historian of philosophy. And in a way, I want to say that that's right. So I don't, again, I'm much more interested in trying to get historians of philosophy interested in more things than they're currently interested in. And if the danger is that they wind up being interested in too much, I think that's actually a less bad danger than the danger of being interested in too little. So that's one answer I would give to that objection. And another is that 
it depends, right? So if you're talking about 18th century Germany, you're probably going to be more interested in talking about, you know, German idealism than what German farmers were doing, because there is very explicit philosophy there. Whereas if you're interested in trying to uncover the philosophical culture of peoples who don't even have writing, then you work with what you've got, right? You don't, and you don't say, well, as philosophers, we completely ignore whatever this culture may have to tell us about the nature of philosophy or the nature of time for that matter, um, or the nature of justice. We don't ignore the culture just because they don't have something like the critique of pure reason, right? We, we look at what we can find. Yeah. So I think to this question about like, if, if we talk about philosophy more broadly, but again, even by that much narrower definition, you've still got multiple distinct starting points. You've got India, China, Greece, all would meet the definition you gave. But the thought would be, this, this seems almost directly analogous to a debate that political theorists have, which is that if you take quite a broad conception of the political, then the political becomes everything. So if you take um, the definition or like the, the sort of starting point I just gave, which is politics is decision-making agenda setting within collectives, ascertaining to the, the, the control and influence and the perception of time, the aggregation of authority, withholding, denying of support, um, stability and rupture, like the, those are the recurring themes of the political then the political is everywhere. Well, it's not quite everywhere. Like, this table isn't a particularly political thing. But it's not just what happens in government. Even if you didn't have a government, if me and you were deciding um, where we want to go for a drink in the evening, there would be a political component to that. Let's go here. No, let's go there. We're, we're agenda-setting. We're deciding. We're exercising power over one another, which can be in a gentle way, by persuasion. Now, that's not necessarily the most important aspect of that interaction. There's many aspects of that interaction. There can be an economic aspect. We have to pay the bill. There'll be a social aspect. We might just talk about our hobbies. There can be an aesthetic aspect. We might get a craft beer. And the political might be like the tenth most important thing, but it's still an aspect of that interaction. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if you could say something similar about philosophy, well, does not, if we do take your sort of broader, more pluralist approach... It, does it sort of become part of everything? Maybe not everything, but yeah. But that doesn't mean it's the only thing that's going on there. It's just that there's all these different aspects of how we as human beings relate to each other. Yeah, and in fact, that, that's not at all surprising, because if we go back to what I said originally about the core philosophical questions, which are things like, what is knowledge, how, and can we even have knowledge, and if so, how... Uh, what sorts of things exist, what should we do? I mean, these are so basic that in a way it would be quite surprising if at least implicit reflection on these questions or implicit presuppositions about those questions didn't turn up pretty much pervasively in human life. And then the question as for us as like professional philosophers or uh, non-professional philosophers, people who are interested in philosophy, just becomes, I think, what do we find interesting? Uh, what do we have time to take seriously? And so on. And here, I think actually it would really do philosophy and hist history of philosophy in general a lot of good if people would be more open to the idea that 
not every historian of philosophy and maybe not every philosophy department needs to be spending most of their time thinking about Plato and Aristotle and Kant, right? Because you can do that in every university in the Western world, but there aren't that many universities where you can do Chinese philosophy, Indian philosophy, Africana philosophy. And no, I was, and I, I was just going to say that um, I think that people have this kind of um, idea that all they have time to do, especially in undergraduate philosophy education, is cover what you might call the basics or the high points of Western philosophy. But my answer to that would be, first of all, if you think that you're managing to cover the high points of Western philosophy in an undergraduate degree, you're deluding yourself because there's way too many high points, right? There's a, there's a reason it took me 300 episodes to cover just ancient and medieval philosophy, right? And it's not because I did a lot of stuff that wasn't interesting. It's because that's how much there is and it's all really interesting. So that's for starters, there's too much Western philosophy to cover the highlights. And second of all, you know, if what you're trying to do is, is get students to think philosophically in a sophisticated way, you can do that just as well with Confucius or Nagarjuna as you can with Aristotle. And I don't really see why it would be a tragedy if different departments, in addition to maybe doing some, you know, at least enough uh, as it were, basics that everyone has a kind of common vocabulary of philosophy. I think it would be really good, especially if the bigger departments would be more open to the idea of specializing in different cultural fields that would do history of philosophy a lot of good. Yeah, you know, yeah. final question to close with is if to cover the ground so far, we've said that there seems to be political expression and religious expression almost from the beginning of Record, certainly from the beginning of recorded history and maybe further back before that. And then there seems to be multiple separate points. You've got China, you've got India, you've got Greece, you've got ancient Mesopotamia, where that evolves or independently there evolves this critical self-reflection and debate and, you know, attempt at first principles that we might call philosophy. What does that tell you about and this is a big question to close with, but what does that tell you about human nature? What does that tell you about what it means to be a human if that does seem those do seem to be universal features of our experience, even in radically different environments and cultures? Yeah, that's a great question. And of course, in a way, it's the question, right? <laughs> and again, I, I would uh, want to say something on both sides. So on the one hand, it's certainly very striking that all these cultures independently produced philosophy of language, ethics, political philosophy, philosophy of mind, right? Um, and you sort of think, well, this can't be a coincidence. And you have some of the same moves being made sometimes. So there's things in that Indian political treatise that I mentioned earlier by Kautilya that have reminded people of Aristotle and of Machiavelli and so on. Um, so, and, and I think actually, people tend to be most excited by that. So when I talk to, like, uh, when I give papers on, let's say, philosophy in several cultures, what they, what really seems to get people excited is that idea, the idea of, like, the same ideas appearing in different places, right? But actually, that's not what excites me most. I mean, I think it's striking, for sure. And I concede that it's true, that different cultures come up with some of the same philosophical ideas. But ultimately, if you think about it, if all that China and India and Africa gave us was they're saying pretty much the same things the Greeks said, but in different languages, 
then that would actually be a reason not to study them, right? Or a reason why we could have just as well studied India as Greece, but it doesn't matter so much, right? We could just pick one. So what fascinates me actually is what's culturally specific. So for example, it makes a huge difference if you're, say, thinking about the nature of language in a context where you're trying to defend the authority of the Vedas, as opposed to in a context of being an Aristotelian philosopher commenting on Aristotle's treatise on language, right? Or the closest thing he wrote to one. And you get maybe some of the same ideas, but ultimately the motivations are different, the context is different, the languages in which they're writing are different, um, the pressures to which they're responding are different, the opponents are different, et cetera. And so although it's true that the same issues keep coming up over and over in these other in these various cultures, and I think that gives us a reason to think that these things are all philosophy, it all counts as philosophy, what's really fascinating to me is that when you look close at each culture, you see that every culture has its own philosophy and that you need to understand that culture from the inside to, to grasp why they came up with the answers that they did. And that's what I find most exciting about it as a project. Cool. Should we pause that? Yeah. Cool. Should I start recording? Um, let me just say, well, thank you for coming on the podcast. And if there's anyone who listens to philosophy podcasts who's not familiar with you, I imagine it's a small group, but to those people and they want to follow up on you, where would you direct them? Just go to the website, which is historyofphilosophy.net. And thanks for having me on. Yeah, thank you for coming on. I've enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to the Political Philosophy Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, we suggest a donation of $2 per episode. So if you think the podcast you just listened to was worth a couple of bucks, we'd love to have them. It's really easy to do. We have a Patreon page. And you can find that, as well as the links to subscribe to us on iTunes or SoundCloud, or follow us on social media, Facebook or Twitter. All of that's on our website, politicalphilosophypodcast.com, politicalphilosophypodcast.com, all one word. So please do check that out, and please do support if you're able to. If you want to help support the show but aren't able to donate... Another great way you can do that is by sharing our episodes on your own social media or forwarding them to friends who you think might be interested. And a big, big thank you to everyone who has shared already and to everyone who's supported us on the Patreon page. Thank you so much for your support. Next week, I will be talking about the illusion of free will with Professor Greg Caruso. And we're going to be arguing that, yes, free will is an illusion, and actually, as soon as we acknowledge it's an illusion, a whole lot of stupid and immoral stuff we're doing we can just easily walk away from, and the world will be a better place for acknowledging the illusoriness of free will. So, if that sounds interesting, join us next week. And again, all the links to subscribe and follow are on the website if you um, want to stay up to date with what we're doing. Thanks for listening. And until next time. Thank you.